Amen, amen. Good morning. Uh, good to be back. Good to be back in uh, Florida in wintertime. This is my favorite season here. Uh, someone told me once Florida has two seasons. Uh, why would anyone live here, and why doesn't everyone live here? This is the latter. So if you're coming back from break, in, enjoy it. Um, it's not going to last very long. All right, so we're New Year, uh, but as I said this morning, same book. We're continuing in First Timothy. And we're beginning chapter 5. There was a natural break from where we were last year. And uh, at the end of chapter 4, the, the, the first four chapters are uh, doctrine and practice and structure for the church. And as Paul often does, he begins up front with the indicatives and uh, what is true, the foundation of knowledge and understanding. And then his, in the second half, he uh, normally goes into imperatives, what we should do, the commands and instructions that fall out of those. And so um, this section, really being chapter 5 and most of chapter 6, stands out in all of the New Testament as the most personal and uh, most geared toward the, the intimate lives of the church. And so uh, really we're going to see over the next several weeks um, the, the care the body shows for one another, the concern that the body has for one another, you really get a sense of life within the early church uh, in these, these couple chapters. So we're going to transition from the past few weeks. So back in chapter 6, or excuse me, chapter 4, verse 6, if you put these things before the brothers, so the doctrine and practice, present them before the brothers, verse 11, command and teach these things. Verse 15 um, practice these things. Paul's first four chapters are an emphasis on teaching and practice. But now it's going to transition to the people. It is so easy to get caught up in the structure or doctrine of the church that you forget that the doctrines and the structure matter. God has given them to us to build up his people in his image for his glory. The doctrine matters because his flock matters. The church matters. The household of faith matters. The structure matters because it keeps the flock in order and, and protected. But I think it's so easy to lose track of the people in the midst of our often desire to be perfect in our polity and perfect in our doctrine. And so uh, the next few weeks, again, as I say, we're going to look at the lives of the people in the local church. Um, and if I could be honest, um, from seminary, I wish seminary spent a lot more time investing in training hearts as they do minds. Because what we're going to talk about over the next several weeks, seminary doesn't really prepare you for. In all fairness, it can't really prepare you for. You can't teach someone's, you can't develop someone's heart from a textbook. It, you, you must love the local church, and this must be worked out in the local church. Um, but as pastors, we, like Timothy, are called to love and shepherd a flock, the household of God, God's family. And sometimes that gets lost in our theological debates and our arguments over polity and sacraments and all the other things. When Jesus told Peter, and his final conversation with him, your love for me will be shown in your love for the sheep. That is what resonates. Jesus says, a new commandment I give you that you love one another. 
And we're going to flesh that out a little bit more. Uh, a wiser old man told me a few years ago that good shepherds smell like the sheep. And if you think about the role of shepherd in the ancient culture, there were no office hours. They weren't checking in and out. They lived with the sheep. They were for days and weeks at a time out in pastures, feeding, protecting, caring for. Sadly, I think too many pastors smell like dry cleaning or libraries or fancy restaurants or boardrooms. Too many pastors think their call is to study, preach, attend meetings, keep office hours, and go home. I know these guys. They have taken more cues from corporate America than the picture of a shepherd. Uh, one of my favorite books on church philosophy of ministry is uh, the, the Trellis and the Vine. If you've talked to me about ministry, you've probably heard me mention this. This was, this was uh, really paradigm shifting for me. The thesis and the idea of the whole book is uh, one of the authors goes into his backyard and he sees, if you don't know what a trellis is, it's a wooden structure that holds up some kind of living structure, a vine, a plant, a bush. He goes out into his backyard and he sees this, this really healthy vine that has overtaken the trellis. The trellis, the wooden structure, is, is, is breaking under the weight of the vine. And he thinks, I need to build a new trellis or my vine's going to end up on the ground. And so he takes weeks and he crafts this, this trellis. He makes it with his own hands. He, he, he carves it. He, he, he fastens it together. And he begins to transfer this very healthy, robust vine over to the trellis that he's made with his own hands. And after a while, he realizes, I need to show off this trellis because that's my handiwork. And so he begins to trim back the vine more than he ever had before. And the vine is now neat and, and, and manicured just enough so that the trellis can shine through. And the rest of the book fleshes out that ministry is vine work and trellis work. That the trellis is the physical structure that is necessary to support the vine. But the church is not the trellis, it's the vine. It's the living thing. And so often in, in almost every church I have been in, the emphasis is on the trellis work. The emphasis is on building structures, is on meetings, is on quotas, metrics, and the vine, the living, the living thing that is supposed to be held up by the trellis is trimmed back. See what I've created. See what I've built. And this weak, unhealthy vine is not being fed, is not being watered, is not being fertilized. And so everything that we have talked about in the first four chapters is in vain if you are not building up a healthy people, if you are not building up a healthy vine, if you lose track of the family of God, then your doctrine is dead orthodoxy. Then your polity, your, your, your church governance just supports you and what you've created, yet the people starve. I have seen this in so many churches. Uh, so this follows well from Brett's message last week, really getting to the, 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 the heart of the shepherd who cares for the people. And I, I loved to see his pastoral heart. Uh, when Shree and I were watching it at, at home, uh, or we, when we were in, in Tennessee, I was amening along so much, I felt like Sandra. And, <laughs> and, 
and Sandra's not here this morning. I know she's watching, so Sandra, we love you and, and, and we miss you. Um, but I encourage you, if you were not here last week, listen to, listen to Brett's message. It was excellent. And I promise I'll be shorter than him this week. So, because I'm only doing two verses. So open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 5. <laughs> First Timothy chapter 5, we're going to read verses 1 and 2. Paul says to Timothy, Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you. You are a gracious and awesome God. We can read a passage like this because you are our Father. We don't let that sink in enough. And if you are our Father, what that means is we have a new family. As we read earlier from Hebrews, Christ is our brother. And he brings many sons to glory means as we sit in a room like this and we sit next to a follower of Christ on one side and a follower of Christ on the other, we are amongst family. We are united in his blood. We are united to one another. He loved his family to the point of death, even death on a cross, that we might have his righteousness and be called worthy of him. Lord, may you stir our affections for one another. May we love one another as you have loved us. May your body be a testament to the new family that we have in Christ Jesus. May we honor our fathers and mothers in the faith. May we encourage and rear up brothers and sisters and sons and daughters in the faith that the world would see that we would be witnesses to the God who transforms hearts and lives, who brings the dead to life, to the praise of your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, so two short verses, and we easily address everyone in the church. It's pretty simple when you describe people how God has created them. There are either men and women older than you or men and women younger than you. It's that simple, period. Our modern fascination with trying to distort God's design is just preposterous. If you are falling into that, you believe anything else, stop. It's silly, it's stupid. We're gonna address men and women, young and old. There we go. Uh, so the first thing to flesh out, uh, first point in your outline here is gonna be the picture of family. And so we all understand family. Um, every one of us has one, whether we like them or not, whether we know them uh, as, as, as well as we should or not. This familial language is all throughout the scriptures, but here's something that we, don't, that we, that, that we often miss, especially if you did not grow up in an Eastern context, but especially in the ancient Near East. Your family was your identity, was your reputation, was your credit, was your social standing in your social circle. They were your protection. They were your provision. 
your entire life surrounded around your, your family. We are Western individualists, and uh, as soon as we can, we can't, make, we can't wait to break off from our families. But it was not so in those days. You would be there for the birth of children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren and aunts and uncles and grandparents would be brought into the home and would, would be cared for. This was built into the DNA of everyone who read these letters in the scriptures for the first time. And so when this picture, when this, this metaphor of family is, is fleshed out, it is meant to be read the same way in, our spiritual, in a spiritual sense. And I think we have lost that in the modern church. And so as we go through this this morning, I want you to think about this. This is, this is fundamental to who we are in Christ. Do you think about this? Do you think that, man, not just as Christ saved me from my sins and brought me into new life with him, which is glorious, but he's given me a new family. He's given me a new identity. He's given me brothers and sisters. He's given me protection and, and provision and community. And we are actually a lot closer to our spiritual family than we are our flesh and blood family. I know it's hard for, for some people, and I think many people naturally reel against this, because maybe you do have a great family, and you're like, yeah, the, the, the church is nice, but we're going to circle our wagons in our house amongst ourselves. But let's think about that for a moment. Which one lasts longer? The flesh and blood that you were born into, that you'll one day die and be separate from, or the body and blood of Jesus Christ that brings you a new birth into a new family that lasts forever. We mentioned this earlier in communion. This is why we partake of the Lord's Supper every week. Because it is a reminder that we're united to Christ and we're, we're united to one another. We read earlier from Hebrews 2 that he's the first among many brothers. He came to save and establish a people. He came to save and establish a church. He came to save and establish a bride, and he came to save and establish a family. And sadly, I think a lot of us have been in churches where it felt anything like family, where it was petty and shallow. Was, and the things that resonate are the bickering and the arguing and the criticizing rather than the love and the service and the patience and the joy. And I'll be honest, this is the first church family I've ever had. This is the first time where I've been in people's homes and people are in our homes and people call me brother and I get to call them, them brother. And that people love and serve one another. I hear stories again and again and again how this person cared for this person and they took meals here and they helped fix the car or, or, or whatever it is. It is so encouraging to hear. And it is so rare because if, if any of you have come from dysfunctional churches or shallow churches, this is encouraging and it's a breath of fresh air and I hope you are encouraged. And I want this, this, this time in this text to be an encouragement and also to spur us on to continue. And those of you who are, are new here, um, if you want to follow Christ, if you know that you are a sinner in need of a savior and you need brothers and sisters around you, welcome to the family. We're glad you're here. 
So I want to show you what Jesus says about this in Matthew 12. He says this in Matthew and Mark. We'll look at the text in in Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12, uh, verses 46 through 50, very end of the chapter. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hands toward the disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. This is how Jesus defines family. And the family of God, who are united in Christ, will be family forever. What we do now is practice for eternity. And I think that's, that's lost on us. Because we're very conditional people. Well, yeah, I know they're my, my, my brother in Christ, but they hold this very tiny doctrine that I don't like, so I'm not going to look at them or talk to them or associate with them. Well, I know that she's my sister in Christ, but she didn't respond to my text message in an in, in appropriate time, and I don't know if she loves me. I've heard this. Really? My wife is laughing because she was on the other end of that. This happens in the church We can be petty, silly people. But is that the picture that Jesus gives us? Because if you are following after Christ, if you desire to keep his commandments, if you have taken up your cross and followed him, as poor as your efforts are, you are a mother and sister and brother because of his righteousness and his faithfulness, not your own. If we just held ourselves to the same standards we held everyone else to, or held everyone else to the same standard we expect to be held to, Church would be a lot more gracious place. But what I want you to see here, verse 50, don't miss this. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother, sister, and mother. Jesus is very clear to say there is one Father. And our brother, Christ, has gone before us. And everyone in the body of Christ is a mother. As a father in a familial sense, under one heavenly father, a new family created of brothers and sisters in unity in Christ. Not the institution, not the programs, not the governance, but the people. The household of faith, the family of God. This is an amazing reality. And I I don't think that we rejoice in it as we ought. I know I don't. But sometimes it just strikes me. In the last couple of weeks, I've had a lot of people traveling, and um, the congregation has been about half the size that it, that it is now. But coming in here today and seeing so many smile fa- smiling faces, people I haven't seen for a couple of weeks, and the hugs and the reception and the joy, it just came over me like, this is family. These are brothers. These are sisters. It's what we all long for. That's why God puts us into family units to begin with. And I think we struggle with this because the church really has not taught and applied the doctrine of adoption. Uh, And so let's look at Romans chapter 8. Because the, the, the doctrine of adoption is inseparable from the gospel. 
We're very right and wrong people. We're, we're judicious people. We like the idea of forensic justification. We like the idea that a judge has declared me righteous, that I am no longer uh, held accountable for, for my sins. I've, I can walk out of the uh, courtroom without the penalty on me anymore. And that is certainly true. But you don't just walk out of the courtroom without penalty. You walk out of the courtroom into a new family. The gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ tells us that we have been adopted into his family, the king of the universe, with a glorious castle made of gold, has taken us peasants who were eating our own feces and rolling around in the mud, and he has washed us off and given us royal garments and brought, him, brought us to his heavenly table. And he has called us to feast with him forever. He has put the robe on us and called us sons and given us inheritance to live in the castle. And we're prone to wander and run back in the street and play in the mud. Look at what Paul says in Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 14. For all who are led by the, by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. When we are born again, the Spirit breathes new life into us and we speak as babies do. We cry out for the first time and say, Dada, and say, Father. And sometimes we think we're so grown up and so mature that we can't just curl up in our father's lap and petition him and cry out to him or just thank him. We are given a heavenly father who is our father forever. The Spirit himself bears witness with you of our, or excuse me, with our spirit that we are children of God. And let's talk about this for a moment. Here's something that's confused in our culture. The liberal idea that there is a universal fatherhood of God and a universal brotherhood of man is a fallacy. There is a right, as John tells us in his epistle, to be called children of God. We are not, we are not brothers with those who are lost. You know, the argument is said, a loving God would not send his children to hell. He doesn't. Our Heavenly Father has never sent one of his children to hell. All of his children are redeemed in Christ Jesus through the spirit of adoption. And so we are all made in the image of God without question. We are all equal in dignity and in value in our, in our humanity. But in our adoption, we are sons of the living God. We are brothers in Christ, never to be separated, never to be cast off. And that brotherhood is a privilege. It is not a right. And it is bestowed on those in whom God bestows his grace. And he, he redeems us, and he teaches us to speak, teaches us to pray, draws us in community, and he gives us an eternal inheritance. And if children then heirs, as Christ being our brother, the world has been given to him all authority in heaven and earth, all the riches of power and glory, dominion forever and ever and ever to rule over creation. And we are called 
to reign and rule with him. We are given an inheritance with him. We are called to share in what only belongs to Christ, but in our union with him. As sons of the king, we are given an inheritance. And we are given the riches of our father who is rich beyond measure. Provided that we suffer with him in order that we also may be glorified with him. Very simply put, die to yourself. If one must follow me, he must pick up his cross, deny himself and follow me. And you will be with me forever. But if you're ashamed of me in this wicked and crooked generation, my father will be ashamed of you. The path to glory begins with death. Christ died that he might be glorified. We die to sin. That through faith we might live in him and look forward to glory one day. This doctrine of adoption brings the courtroom and the family and eternity together. And it's the basis of everything else we're going to look at. And so, again, I want to ask you, have you ever considered this? Do you know what it means to be adopted into the family of God? Do you view your church as your church family? I think many people have a low view of membership. They, they hop from church to church. I might attend for a week. I might not attend for a week. I'll jump over here. I'll jump over here. Because they have no idea about the doctrine of adoption. They have such a low view of, of church. It's like, well, one church is as good as another. And I can get this over here and this over here. We are meant to be known. And I think that terrifies us. We don't like brothers and sisters because ours might be jerks. We don't want parents because ours let us down. We're happy and comfortable being stuck in our own little bubble where no one can challenge us and no one can hurt us. It's not what Christ calls us to. He didn't come for comfort. He came to suffer and do the will of his Father. And we are called to do the will of our Father. And if it means suffering, then so be it because it also means glory. And have you ever met people who claim Christ, yet they want nothing to do with the brothers and sisters he died for? You ever met people who say, yeah, I, I love the Lord, but everything in their lives, their conversation, their social media, looks like they love the world. And they are not gracious or caring or show concern for those who Christ died for. If our Savior took on flesh, came down from his throne on heaven, walked on earth, got dirt in between his toes, cried, ate, slept, wept, was humiliated and crucified for us, and rose again for us, not just for me, here's our American individualism again, but for his bride but for his, his family. We, as Christians, know what, it's, what it means to be loved by a Savior. But how often do we withhold that love from one another? What if our Savior treated us the way we treat others? All right. So, having all that in mind, let's get to our text. The first phrase here. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, Do not rebuke an older man. All right, do not rebuke. Why does he start like this? 
Well, realize that before we get into all these, these categories, Paul assumes error. Why? Because we are sinful saints. He assumes that if you're a pastor, you're going to need to correct. You're going to need to challenge. And you're going to need to rebuke. Correction is needed, and it is, and it is helpful. Uh, we know this in 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof. I'll tell you about the translation of these words in a moment. For reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped by every, for every good work. So why does he say here, do not rebuke? We know that rebuke is necessary. Correction is necessary. Um, what you don't get in the English here, and I think that's why the ESV translates reproof in 2 Timothy 3, is the word in 1 Timothy 5 is the only time this is used in the entire New Testament. This word stands alone, and it's not just rebuke. It's not the normal reproof. It is a angry, severe, chastising. It is, it is almost literally to be translated to strike with words. Do not be harsh. Do not strike with words an older man. Now we know from other scriptures that correction is, is good. Let's, let's look at a couple. Um, Proverbs chapter 15, 31 through 33. A wise man grows from correction, and a wise man desires correction. Proverbs 15, 33, or excuse me, 31 to 33. The ear that listens to life-giving reproof will dwell among the wise. Whoever ignores instruction despises himself, but he who listens to reproof gains intelligence. The fear of the Lord is instruction in wisdom, and humility comes before honor. One more in Psalm 144. 141.5. I love this. This is a sign of a mature man here. Psalm 141.5. Let a righteous man strike me. It is kindness. Let him rebuke me. It is oil for my head. Let my head not refuse it. Yet my prayer is continually against their evil deeds. So what Paul is saying here, absolutely correction is needed. But don't be angry. Don't be harsh. This is an older man. This is an older woman. Don't rebuke them out of a sense of, out of, a sense of arrogance. How much damage has been done in the church with harsh and critical words? How many people are scarred for months or years? Because instead of listening, being patient or gentle, pastor put them through the ringer. We always start with gentleness. Then if they don't listen, then it needs to be ramped up. Um, I like what John Calvin said about this. He says that uh, a pastor needs two voices, one for the wolves and one for the sheep. And remember that when you are speaking to sheep, even ones who need correction, they are still sheep. We do not, we do not gnarl and bark and spit at sheep. We better at the wolves. And so even within that voice for the sheep, a, a, a wise leader knows when to be firm, knows when to be strong, knows when to correct and be unwavering, yet not out of anger, not out of harshness, 
not out of spite. This is what Paul says. If you're still in 2 Timothy, look at chapter 2, verse 24. It's exactly what he says in the next book. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. Remember, this is, and if you think it's, the, uh, it's only meek and mild, this is the same Paul who confronted Peter to his face publicly for distorting the gospel and refusing to eat with Gentiles. Don't mistake the kindness for weakness. Correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. The whole point of correction. We want people to repent. We want people to come to saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if they're in Christ, we want them to come in line with him. But so many times... As pastors, it is hard not to take things personal. It is hard not to respond when people lash out. There have been many who have walked through these doors who have called me all kinds of crazy things. And it is hard not to respond in the same way. But we can't. Our Savior, when he was accused of blasphemy, was on trial for his life like a sheep to the slaughter, did not open his mouth. And so we must use our mouths, but use them sparingly. And so now as we get into these two categories here, they're parallel. There's the parents, mothers and fathers, and the siblings, brothers and sisters. And because of this parallel and the way that it's, that it's set up, there's honor given to older men and women for sure. But this harshness applies to all, especially from what we looked at in 2 Timothy chapter 2. All right, so first, do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers. So let's look at these fathers and mothers in the church first. So the, the family unit is the unit of the Bible. God created all mankind through a mother and a father, Adam and Eve, Abraham and Sarah, on and on and on and on. The complement of a godly father and a godly mother is what is needed for children to grow up into maturity. This unit, Genesis can be called the book of families because all throughout it, God shows how in his chosen families he brings about his plan of redemption and and teaches lessons along the way and preserves a people for himself. When Jesus Christ comes, as the promised offspring through the family of Abraham. He comes to make new creatures, and he creates a new family, a new covenantal unit. And that unit, the spiritual family of God, needs mothers and fathers, needs mature men and women, needs the teaching and strength and guidance and firmness of fathers, needs the nurture and care and affection of mothers. And just like healthy children need a mother and father to pour into them, so do healthy churches and healthy Christians. And honoring father and mother is not just for little children. 
in the ancient Near Eastern culture, in, in, in our culture, when we, when we turn 18 and we move out, I don't have to honor my father and mother anymore. I'm gone. I'm not under their, their roof. But in this culture, you always honored your parents. You always honored your mother. You always honored your father. Your, your father. And this is carried in to the church. You are to see that elderly woman as a mother and speak to her and treat her as such. An elderly man as a, as a father and speak to him and treat him as such. I think we've lost the reverence for older people in our culture in general. Eastern cultures where everyone is aunt or, or, or uncle. There is a sense in which everyone older than you automatically has a, a, a reverence and a concern and an honor. And this would have been in the DNA of the people who read these, but it's not in ours. We, we dismiss what is older. We, we, we minimize those who seem stuck in their ways. And let's, let's be honest, many are. But what happens when your parents are stuck in their ways? What happens when your parents can't figure out the remote or the iPhone? Do you yell at them harshly? Or do you patiently, for the fifth and sixth time, show them how to do FaceTime? Because you love them. And you understand that they helped you, they changed your, your, your diapers. And so in the church, you're going to have people as a new believer who are going to change your diapers. Because you're going to make a mess of your Christianity for a while. So that when you get older, others will help you change your diapers. <laughs> and this is how we should view the older saints in the congregation. And pastors are to set this example. I love what Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Titus chapter 1 Titus. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. One of the T's. I'll get there eventually. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 7. Notice how when Paul writing on behalf of Sylvanus and uh, Timothy, this is, this is Paul's pastoral example. We were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you had become very dear to us. What a beautiful picture of the church. What an encouraging picture of the church. That is a man who is confident in his manhood. I don't think there's a guy in here who says, yep, I treated you like a nursing mother because you were very dear to me. We can learn from Paul on that one. But to balance it out, he goes on. For you remember, brothers, here's the family turn, our labor and toil. Paul didn't see himself checking out at 5 p.m. like corporate America. I work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses in God also how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how like a father with his children we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. This is the pastoral picture. So when Paul is speaking to Timothy, Timothy, do not rebuke an older man. Do not rebuke an older woman. Be as a nursing mother. Be as a, a disciplining father who doesn't respond out of anger. Children need discipline. They need correction, but they need it in love. And they need to be taught through it so that they're not making the same mistakes again and again and again. 
And so when we get to the older man in 1 Timothy 5, this is presbyteros, the same word used for an elder. We know from context, it's an older man. But the honor is there. The concern for the man is there. And especially for a young pastor, remember, Timothy, don't let them look down on you for your age, probably mid-30s. An older man in those contexts is a gray-haired man. Be careful how you speak to the older men because they're already wondering if someone this young should lead older men and women. Don't give in to their fears and concerns by treating them poorly. Don't rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Doesn't mean that you can't correct an older man, or doesn't mean that older men don't need correction, but when you do, treat him as a father with honor and encouragement. And the church needs older men. The church needs men who lead families and give wise counsel and who set an example in strength and in servanthood. And when, when, when there are godly men who are shepherded well and encouraged and corrected well, everyone benefits. When families are led well, wives flourish and children flourish. And we are to love and respect these men in our midst like our earthly fathers, even if an older man is a new believer. The Lord will use the wisdom in the life that he has lived in his grace and in his timing to invest in the younger generation. So we've got older men and older women. Older women, same thing. The more that the Lord has, ladies, the more that the Lord has brought you through, the more you have to offer young women in the congregation. You have seen the Lord be faithful through ups and downs, through children, maybe through grandchildren. The concern and wisdom of godly saints is a treasure in the church. And so I want to speak to our body uh, just for a little bit, because we need spiritual mothers as well. And one of the stated difficulties not publicly, but of the women of, of this church, it's difficult when you have a, a mostly young congregation who is highly educated. And so a lot of our older women feel that because I don't have a theological education, I don't have anything to offer these, these younger women. It could not be further from the truth. Because you know what is needed to supplement all that education? Love, nurture, compassion, patience. They need, the young women need older women to nurture their hearts while their minds are being nurtured in the classroom. And like young men and young women, we can't get that in a classroom. It is needed in the local church. This is why we have a Titus 2 model of discipleship. I want you to turn to Titus chapter 2. So we're spending a lot of time in the pastorals. If you're in 1 Timothy, one book to the right is 2 Timothy. Next book to the right is Titus. Titus chapter 2. But as for you, uh, verse 1, teach what accords with, with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. And so train young women to love their husbands and children. To be self-controlled, pure, 
working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger man to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And he goes on. That has been our desire and our model for discipleship here from day one. So, if you are saying, well, I can't disciple anyone, I can't teach anyone, are you an older man? What does that mean? Are there men in the congregation younger than you? Teach them to be self-controlled. Are you an older woman? Are there women in the congregation younger than you? You may not have to have all the theological answers. Let me help you out a little bit. For the older saints in the room, these students don't want you to have all, answer all their theological questions. They want, they want you to care for them. They want you to help them become mature followers of, of Christ. And this has been our, our model. People ask, like, why don't we do small groups? Because let, let's, let's be honest. Men are not going to open up in a way that they need to with their wives in the room and other women in the room. This is the biblical model. This is what God has been doing from the foundation of his church. The men disciple and train men in godly manhood. And the women disciple and train and raise women up in godly womanhood. And this benefits the entire body. And so, let's put this into practice. Ladies, if you are here today, there just so happens to be a women's study today. And so the women are going to come together and talk about how the gospel transforms every aspect of their life. You get to actually talk out and flesh out this whole idea of being a family. And older women, me encourage you, you have a lot to offer. And when you speak, the young women listen. I know you're sometimes you are scared to speak, but don't, don't, don't hold back. Encourage them, love them, walk alongside them. And when they use too many theological terms, you can correct them. It's okay. All right. So, uh, in earthly families, when parents are faithful, the Lord is faithful to redeem many children. But in the family of God, all children are redeemed. All children are brothers and sisters in Christ. So let's move into this last category. Brothers and sisters. The term brothers is the most common term used to apply to believers in the entire New Testament. Over a hundred times the word brothers is applied to those who are in Christ Jesus. These are our spiritual siblings. This is an eternal reality. It is not optional. We're not just brothers if we act like it. We are brothers because we are in Christ. This is why Paul says in Romans 12, uh, Romans 12, 10, it'll be up on the screen. Do not be slothful in zeal. Oh, that's 11. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. The mark of a true Christian, of a mature church, is those who love each other as brothers, who see each other as brothers. I didn't grow up saying brother in church. Some of you did, some of you didn't. But it is so sweet now to say brother and actually mean it. I love when I get to travel and, and go to churches and people I have never met. And we read the same scriptures and we sing the same songs and you hear brother. And you actually meet a brother or sister from across the country or across the globe. My brother and I grew up as brothers in the same home. And as an older brother, I didn't like him too much often because as younger brothers do, they, they, they want to tag along. But when God transformed my heart 
when I came to saving faith, to call him brother means so much more now. And it is so sweet to say brother, and I will be calling him brother for eternity. And to have that in your own family is an amazing gift from the Lord. And so when he says brother here, he doesn't mean bickering brothers and sisters like little terrible children, because sometimes that's how we act. And sadly, many of the churches that we've been in, they feel like dysfunctional families. And so what Paul's saying here is when your brothers and sisters act like brats because they will, remember that they are covered by the blood of Christ. Treat them as brothers in Christ and sisters in Christ. And so younger men, younger men, we spend a lot of time in Proverbs. Younger men need correction. The entire book is to my son, heed your father's instruction. Listen to the teachings of your mother. Don't go after this woman. It's interesting that when you get to Titus, older men are to teach younger men to be self-controlled. That covers a lot. That is what younger men need. But they're family. We don't dismiss them. We don't look down on them. We love them. And we teach them because we are training young men to one day be the older man. And we need to show them an example of godliness, of gentleness, of directness and firmness. Same thing with younger women. We care for them. We protect them. We build up our little sisters in Christ. This is why Brett was so passionate last week, and I'm glad he was, because if I was here, I would be too. Because when someone attacks our sisters, watch out. But I have to say a word of warning here. Pastors in every age, especially this one, need to be careful with these relationships. I know a pastor right now who is under scrutiny from all the other elders because he thinks it's a good idea to disciple women half his age, women, period. We live in an egalitarian society. That means we uh, want to see no distinction between the sexes, and it has created a lot of confusion. This is why Titus, this Titus 2 model is important. Because as, a, as pastors, we're in a difficult situation. We, we love our sisters, and we are to shepherd them and care for them. But we need to be very clear on what is appropriate and what is not. And many of you young people have seen the, the, the dangers of we can be friends and just friends. It doesn't work that way. God has created us to be drawn to one another. And so we need to be wise in that. And so... If you think you can just be friends with the cute girl or the uh, cute guy and stay in all purity, it ain't going to happen. That's why he finishes where he does. In all purity. Absolutely. In every way. Be above reproach, Timothy. Be above reproach, young Christian, in your heart and in your actions. In all of your dealings. Remember verse 12 of chapter 4. Let no one despise you for your youth. But, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. We are to set these examples as pastors. And as men, you are this example in your homes. And as women, you are examples to your children and to other women. We must all set this example in all purity, in all things. It is so sad when we get petty and we get shallow and we get selfish, especially for pastors. Because to hear that a pastor is harsh or unloving 
and I hear it often, it is really discouraging because how was our shepherd with us? How is he with us when we sin against him? And how different would the local church look if everyone approached correction and disagreements in brotherly love? The last cross-reference I want to look at is Matthew 18, verse 15. Many of you know Matthew 18 to be the passage on church discipline, and church discipline is needed. Jesus gives us this framework because people are sinners, and we need correction, and we need rebuke. But step one, the beginning of all church discipline, of dealing with all difficult Christians, look at verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Goal one of disagreements in the church is gaining brothers, gaining sisters, is unity, is love. So let's transition into, I've got three points of practical application for us. They're all easy. You'll be able to remember them. Number one is love. So I want you to hear this. What we do face-to-face to our brothers and sisters is what has lasting impact, whether it's harsh or gentle. Think about it. No one is going to remember my sermon six months from now. I barely remember what I preached two weeks ago. But if you are kind and you serve someone and love them, they will remember that for years. Or if you're harsh and you're impatient, and you're a jerk, they'll never forget it. I had a member call me this, this week. Um, they left almost three years ago, and they're in a church that is dealing with a lot of dysfunction right now. And he said, I just want to thank you. Uh, I didn't realize how well that you loved me and cared for me, and I didn't realize it at the time. Because of when you're around pastors who, who are arrogant and who are harsh and who are short-tempered, there's a stark contrast. And so that is encouraging to hear. Loving people well, that will last. Because our God is love. He's loved us in Christ. And we love as he loves until he returns. That's why the writer of Hebrews tells us, say, let brotherly love continue. Let brotherly love continue until Christ comes. Live in brotherly love. That's why we're only dealing with two verses here because this is this central. The other side of the same coin is pain. Point number two. Love opens you up to pain and disappointment. It's a reality. Don't be surprised. Um, I'm not. I know how great of sinners you are. I know how great of sinners I am. Great of sinner I am. But many try to avoid it. Well, I'm not going to love anyone Because if I do, then I might get hurt. And if I let people in, then I allow them to hurt me. That comes with the territory. But the love is worth the pain. Because of the pain that our Savior went through for the people that we love. We know in our own families, families are hard. Our hearts are broken when our families are dysfunctional. When our mothers, our fathers, our sisters, our brothers are not following the Lord. This cuts deep, and we pray for them every week, and it is not easy. And it's even more heartbreaking when someone who's professing Christ does not follow the Lord. And they're living in open rebellion and blatant unrighteousness. 
When you love, you open yourself up to pain. But the love is well worth it because of point number three, joy. Because for as much dysfunction as we have in our earthly families and in our spiritual family, our hearts should leap as we look around the room. If you look around the room and you you mourn your earthly family, look at the family that God has given you. Look at all the brothers and sisters you have. And not just in this room. Chinese brothers and African sisters. Pakistani and Germany and Canada and Mexico. And you can go on and on and on. All the different ethnicities that are represented in this room and are represented around the globe. We have a family in Christ that will worship forever. That will be united forever. That have reason to sing and be joyful So yeah, there'll be love, there'll be pain, but what will last is the joy that we have in Christ in one another. So I want to close with a quick story. Um, the Gaithers are songwriters, hymn writers. Um, some of your traditions use them more than, than others. Um, we don't use a lot of their songs for many reasons. Uh, but they tell a story of a father who's a mechanic His young daughter was facing heart surgery. Uh, He was trying to get an extra hour so they could pay for all of of her treatments. Um, There's a gas leak and an explosion, and his entire body was covered with burns. This is on Good Friday, the Friday before Easter Sunday. And his daughter is in the hospital, and then he gets rushed to the hospital, and they don't think he's going to make it through the night. And so the church comes together and texts go out and emails go out. And churches, or, and, the, and, and the members of the church come in the building. This is Friday. They open the church up on Saturday, and many people stayed throughout the night to pray for this man and his family. Many people did not eat, did not sleep. But on Easter Sunday morning, they got the news that, that he pulled through and that he was going to make it. And so on the way home after the service, Gloria Gaither wrote these words. She says, For the body of Christ, that news was better than eight hours of sleep and a good breakfast. New life was infused into us all. Tears of praise and joy began to flow. And our hope and gratitude poured itself into the glorious songs of Easter. Jesus lives, and because he lives, we too shall live. On our way home from church that morning, Bill and I were so full of beauty, of the beauty of it all, that we could hardly speak. Finally, he said, or finally, we said to each other that we had come to realize through all this, they would do the same thing for us. And they wrote the song, I'm so glad to be a part of the family of God. I've been washed by the fountain, cleansed by his blood. Join heirs with Jesus as we travel this sod, for I'm a part of the family, the family of God. The second verse says, from the door of the orphanage to the house of the king, No longer an outcast, a new song I sing. From rags to riches, from the weak to the strong, I'm not worthy to be here, but praise God I belong. Let's pray. Lord, we praise you this morning. How awesome you are in all your ways. How gracious you are to us. How loving you are to us. Lord, teach us to love one another as you have loved us. 
Help us to see the body of Christ as our brothers, our sisters. Help us to see our Savior as our older brother who has gone before us, who has made us new creatures in him, who has given us a new identity, who has given us righteousness and salvation and an inheritance and a family. Lord, we praise you for your grand plan of redemption, the gospel that promises us everything in Christ, including brothers and sisters to be with for eternity. Lord, we praise you for this family, this church, this flock. May we go out of here with greater gratitude for what you have done for us, greater courage to share your love for us, and greater boldness and strength as we stand up against the world who so desperately wants to destroy us because they are ruled by their enemy, excuse me, by their prince, their leader. He is our enemy, and we know his end is sure. We praise you, Lord, that we know the end, that Jesus Christ, our Lord, our King, he reigns and will put every enemy under his footstep, footstool. And we look forward to the day we'll be joined with him and all the saints in glory forever. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.